ago in Texas, and then earlier this week, we traveled from Texas to Tuscaloosa, and uh, it's good. It's the first time that I think I've taken what was almost a vacation in the many, many years that I've been here, so that was good. I needed that. I also needed to be at the conference because I needed to Listen to other men. I hear enough of me, and it was just good to listen to other Sovereign Grace preachers and gain some perspective from them, and then have the opportunity to kind of decompress a little bit and think about GCA and how we do what we do, what we're like as a church, how we are as a people. 
you can turn to Mark 5, and we'll get there eventually. I know right where we left off at the beginning of Mark 5. But I want to share a few thoughts with you first. Because uh, Paul wrote to Timothy and said, preach the word, be ready in season and out. And that has been sort of a primary directive as far as I've been concerned for these 17 years that GCA has been a public church. I've tried to follow that, preach the word, be ready in season and out. But he didn't stop there. Paul also said to exhort and to rebuke and, and to do that with gentleness, with long-suffering, and with doctrine, with teaching. And so I hope this is a friendly exhortation. That's certainly my goal, is that this is a friendly exhortation. Let me give you context for this. Jesus was asked, what is the greatest command? And he said that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and mind. Uh, one of the three synoptics adds the word strength instead of mind. So I always quote it as heart, soul, mind, strength. He says the second is like it, that you love your neighbor as yourself. In these two commandments, he said, all the law and the prophets are summed up in that. And so I think we as Christians, that's a prime directive for us. That we need to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, strength, love our neighbor as ourselves. I know that nobody does it perfectly, but I know that it's a goal. Now, for many, many years, and certainly the men know this, I've talked about it, it's been one of my failings, is because my private life didn't have a whole lot of emotion in it. Uh, my doctrine and theology became fairly emotionless. And so I've spent many years here just pounding sound doctrine. In fact, I have confessed to the men that I had become so stoic in the way that I approached the Bible that even when words like love came up, things like God so loved the world, that I was quick to counter that with, yes, but let's talk about what world means, and yes, let's talk about there. there's no Greek equivalent to whosoever, so that I could just kind of keep the love part at a minimum. Uh, I would read, God is love, and I would say, yes, but God is also a consuming fire. And so I would always keep the love stuff in its proper place as far as I was concerned. And then last year, God saw fit to let me have a wife, a woman I'm going to live the rest of my life with, and opened up all these emotional vistas that I thought were long dead. I thought I had squashed them well and completely. And, and they've all kind of opened up. And I've spent time looking at the Bible through a new awakening, a new realization and it became one of the themes at the conference, which was really interesting to me, the number of men who talked about not only God's love toward us in the way that he has saved us and redeemed us and the things he's done, but our appropriate love for him in response to that. 
And that got me thinking about GCA because everything ultimately for me comes back to GCA. Okay, so my wife says to me, and this has always been the rule from the beginning, from the start. She has always said to me, there's two deal breakers, pornography, adultery. You engage in either of those, that's a deal breaker as far as I'm concerned. And her rationale was, I should be enough for you. And she put it in question form, why am I not enough? Okay, well, that was really helpful for me. Not because I'm afraid of breaking those deal breakers. I'm, I'm fine with those two things. We're, we're doing great. But... Because then I carry it over into my theology and I start thinking, okay, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. That is like God saying, why am I not enough for you? And I recently had a conversation with someone, and I mean real recently, where they said, I'm dealing with this temptation and I always lose. The temptation always wins. What do I do? And this is right where I went with them. I said, why is God not enough for you? I mean, he has done everything necessary for you. He has given you everything you have, your life, your breath, knowing your own name. He has redeemed you for all eternity. And he has said, don't do that. And you prefer your sin over his direct word. Why? Well, it can only be because you prefer what you prefer over him because you don't really love him that much. I demonstrate my love for my wife the same way that any of you men or women would demonstrate your love for your spouse by how you treat them. That's an acid test. Do you love them? How do you treat them? Oh, I love my wife, and I beat her twice a day. That's not love, even if you call it love. I love my wife, but I neglect her regularly. Well, that's not love. Anybody can see that's not love. Okay, so now put that in the God context. So I love God. Oh, and the Bible says love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. I mean, like, completely. He's everything. I know that. I know that's what the Bible says. I know. And I do. I love him. I just neglect him all the time. Okay, do you really love him then? Do you honestly, actually love him? Okay, now I'm going to apply it. I was in Texas. Tom sends me a message saying that a week ago Wednesday, Micah did a really good job. First part of that text made me happy. Tom will tell you that by Sunday 1 o'clock, I'm on the phone to everybody. I was calling Steve. I talked to Micah. I was calling Tom. I'm asking my kids, how'd it go? How did it go? Okay, so I get the report. Micah did really good. The next part of the text, virtually nobody was there. I was heartbroken. Now, Micah 
has a job. Micah has a family. Micah has responsibilities. In fact, every other Tuesday, Micah comes to men's group, which he leads, and he comes prepared. Despite the fact that he has all these other obligations in his life, when I said to him, would you also handle a Wednesday while I'm gone, he rose to the occasion. Absolutely, I'll do it. That message is on our website now. It's a good message about the humility of Christ found in Ephesians 2.8. It's a good message. Micah laid his body down and took the time it took to produce a really good God-glorifying message. Nobody showed up. And then you'll say to me, I love God. Really? How do you treat him? How do you treat his word? What do you do? Here was a perfect opportunity, to my way of thinking, to satisfy both I love God and I love my neighbor as myself. Not even a neighbor, a brother, a friend, someone we do love and should love. Here was a perfect opportunity to do exactly what Paul said and use your body as a living sacrifice which is your reasonable service. It's just reasonable that you would be like that. And then stop whatever else it is you're doing. Bring yourself here to demonstrate your love of God and his word and your love of a brother who took the time to do the work. Now, I get it. I get that we're busy. I get we have jobs. I get tomorrow's a work day. I get the kids are sick. I get I'm under deadline. I get, I get it. But not everybody every Wednesday. Right? right? Am I telling the truth here? Right. Now, I'll be here the next couple of Wednesdays, and then I'm gone again. I got one more conference this year in Chattanooga. And somebody else will be standing here that Wednesday night. Don't leave them by themselves. I appreciate that you show up here on Sundays. But I don't think it's too much to ask. Not my ask. God's ask. God saying, if you love me, act like it. I don't think asking for a couple hours a week out of your time is too much. Considering that he feeds you every day. He gives you a right mind every day. He's given you clothes. He's given you a house. He's given you a car. Even the things that you say are the reason you can't make it, he provided those things for you. And you should, by your reasonable service, have been here on Wednesday. And I was in Texas, and I was really disappointed. So, hopefully, that's a word to the wise. Yeah? Yes. Now, I know how you all are because I know how I am. I know how humans are. I know you're going to all nod at me and say, yeah, good, Jim. Yeah, that's right. What kind of person am I? How much do I really love God? How much do I really love the brethren? Good. That was a good exhortation, Jim. And then this week's going to come around and you're going to be busy. You have enough time to do Whatever is important to you. That's a fact. If somebody called you up and said, let's 
go to lunch Tuesday, you would shuffle everything to make sure you were there Tuesday. The men who come here for men's group on Tuesday nights arrange their schedule to be here every Tuesday night. And they do show up here because it's important to them. So they adjusted their lives accordingly. And they're here because you have enough time for whatever's important to you. And if it's a work night, or if the kids have school the next day, or if it, go to bed early the night before. Go to bed early the night after. Arrange your life for what's really important to you. You will arrange your life for a dentist appointment. You will arrange your life for a golf outing. You will arrange your life if the kids have to be somewhere Thursday at 2 o'clock. You'll arrange your life. Be careful when you say, I love God, and then don't act like it. Is that fair? Now, all the way through the New Testament, all the New Testament authors use Old Testament Israel as an example of how not to be. And how were they? Neglectful toward God. God gave them everything. God redeemed them and took them out of Egypt and brought them to the land of milk and honey, gave them his law, gave them his prophets, the revelation of himself. They had all the advantages until they became comfortable. They became familiar. And because they were familiar, they decided to neglect God until God took them out of their land and had to take them through several different punishments. Go back and read the book of Judges. What is that all about? There's a generation that God corrects. They do fine for two generations, and then they forget what God has done, and they neglect him again, and then he has to send their enemies against them, and then they go crying to God again. The New Testament, my point is, the New Testament keeps saying, look, Israel neglected God time and time again, though God was really, really good to them. Here's my point. God is really, really good to us. He's been really faithful to us and really good to this church. Don't be like Israel. That's the warning of the New Testament. Don't be like them. And that's what I'm saying to you here. Don't be like them. And I know that we make it easy because we put stuff on the Internet. So it's like, well, I can miss church because I'll just listen to it tomorrow or this weekend or whenever I get around to it. But I know from experience, I shouldn't really use myself as the example because I have trained myself to be able to sit in front of an empty camera and teach. I'll, I'll teach two people if they show up. So I may not be the best example. But I know from experience that Micah would have really benefited from you being here. And it would have been a great demonstration of your love of God's word and your love of a brother. Is that sufficient? Have I made my point? Yes. Okay. Was that a friendly exhortation? Okay. All right. Mark 5. Let's uh, review real quickly what we're talking about in the Gospel of Mark. Mark is the action gospel. Mark doesn't take a lot of time to tell us what Jesus said. He concentrates on what Jesus did. And he uses the word immediately over and over and over again because he's moving very quickly through the events of Jesus' ministry 
so that he can get to the point of Calvary, so that he can talk in greater detail about the last week of Jesus' life, the crucifixion, the resurrection, what Jesus accomplished. And so he's really, at this point in Mark 5, he's really demonstrating what he's been demonstrating to us for the last couple of weeks that we've looked at Mark. He's demonstrating who it is that's on the cross. This is somebody who has power. This is somebody who has authority. And today, out of the mouth of a demoniac, we're going to understand clearly who he is because even the demons are going to call him the Son of God. Now, when Jesus was baptized, the Spirit came down in the visage of a dove and landed on him, and a voice came from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son. On the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. But okay, we could kind of expect that God would point out his son and say, that's my son. Listen to my son. Respect my son. But now even the demons are going to say, you're the son of God. We know who you are. They worship in front of him. Why? Who are demons? What are demons? Demons are fallen angels. And if that's a fact, it means that at some point they were in heaven. They were part of the created host that God decided to surround himself with. And then they fell and were cast out of heaven, but they know who it was that cast them out. And so they're on planet Earth. They're taking up residence in any host they can find. And who shows up? The very one who has control over them. The very one who has power over them. And because they recognize him as the one who has the authority and the power, they immediately bow to him. They worship him. They request of him. For lack of a better word, they practically pray to him. When they are told that they have to leave their host, they then ask Jesus is it okay if we take those pigs over there? That's remarkable to think about because they couldn't even take swine without Jesus say so. So who's in charge here? That's my whole point. Who's in charge? Jesus. Jesus is in complete and utter charge. So much so that even the demons can't act without him. The waves lay down at his feet. Sickness flees. Death is overturned. Life as a result. Okay, he's in absolute, complete charge. He is the absolute authority. Why am I stressing this? Because mankind, human beings, are the only ones I can find in this book who don't seem to get that. The demons get it. God gets it. The Spirit of God gets it. The waves get it. The birds of the air get it. Everybody gets it that he's in charge. Even sickness and death and hell, the gates of hell are not going to prevail against him. Everybody gets that he's the absolute authority. Human beings, a little fuzzy on the topic. If that's not a demonstration of our sin, I don't know what is. If that's not a demonstration of our depravity, I can't think of anything other than that that is more demonstrative of our complete egocentricity, our complete pride and hubris, 
and the fact that we think the Almighty, the authority, the sovereign one, the very Son of God, somehow bends to what we prefer. And nobody else thinks that. And so what do humans do after Jesus drives out the demons and then they take the herd of pigs, the herd of pigs then kill themselves. That's how bad the demons are. And you'll notice there are enough demons to take the whole herd. They kill themselves and the local townspeople, what do they do? They're upset about the death of pigs. They were kind of okay with the demoniac in their midst. They were kind of okay as long as he was in chains and living in the caves and, you know, live and let live. But as soon as Jesus shows up and frees the man and then the demons take the pigs and the pigs kill themselves, the people show up and tell Jesus to get out of here. Just get away. Come on. You're bad for the economy. You're drowning pigs. So what do they do? The very authoritative son of God, they reject in favor of give us the demoniac. And I think that's demonstrative to this very moment of how we all egocentrically want our own way and are going to be fine with that whole Jesus thing as long as it doesn't make us uncomfortable, as long as it doesn't hurt us economically. As long as it doesn't get in the way of what we want, what we prefer. But Christianity, by its very nature, not only includes a certain amount of suffering, it also includes sacrifice. A few moments ago, I quoted Paul saying that you should give your bodies as a living sacrifice because that is your reasonable service. Sacrifice in the Old Testament always cost something. Sacrifice by its very nature was difficult to do. How many of you have ever strung up a lamb in front of your kids and then slit its throat and caught the blood and then put the blood on the doorpost and the lentil? How many of you have ever butchered a cow? How many of you have ever broken the neck of birds as a sacrifice to God? How many of you? How many of you have done that? No, none of you. My point is, sacrifice is effort. Sacrifice has cost to it. Paul knows that when he says, it is your reasonable service to present your body a living sacrifice. Because he knows that putting your body on the line for Christ, for God, for what you believe costs you the people here didn't like the cost so they asked Jesus to leave okay that was all introduction now we can start reading because here's the story starting in chapter 5 verse 1 and they came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes in the book of Matthew it's also called the Gadarenes same people group same place And he, when he had come out of the boat, immediately a man came from the tombs with an unclean spirit and met him. And he, the unclean man, had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one was able to bind him anymore, 
even with a chain. Okay, so he's got supernatural kind of power. You put chains on him and he breaks the chains. You bind him, put shackles, fetters on him, he's going to break out. Verse 4 says that because he had often been bound with shackles and chains and the chains had been torn apart by him and the shackles were broken in pieces and no one was strong enough to subdue him. And constantly, night and day, among the tombs and in the mountains, he was crying out and gashing himself with stones. In other words, he's tormented. Now, in a moment, we're going to find out why he's so tormented. When Jesus says to the group of demons, what's your name? They're going to say legion. Okay, now a Roman legion pre-Jesus was about 3,000. In the time of Jesus, anywhere from three to 6,000. And they say, our name is legion because we're many. It would have taken a long time to list the individual names. We're just a legion of demons living inside this man and tormenting him constantly, night and day, among the tombs. Do you understand what the tombs are? These are the places of the dead. And he's living in the tombs, in the places of the dead. And he's up in the mountains, and he's crying out, and he's gashing himself with stones. And seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up, and bowed down before him. Notice that he did not say, here comes Jesus, I better hide. Because he knows who he's dealing with. He's dealing with the Son of God who will know where he's hiding. He knows there's no getting away, is my point. There's no getting away from the omniscient one. There's no getting away from the one who knows everything, from the one who is everywhere at once. You you can't escape him. And he's coming toward you. So what does he do? He runs to Jesus. And as he runs to Jesus, he bows down before him. That's an act of worship. That's an act of admission. You're the one in charge here. I'm not. You're the powerful one. I'm not. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What do I have to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? To me, that's fascinating. Because you don't see that declaration from any human beings. Finally, Jesus ends up asking Peter, Who do men say that I am? Oh, some say you're Isaiah, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. In a moment, we're going to see that Herod even thinks he's John the Baptist reincarnated. Nobody really knows who he is. He says to Peter, who do you say that I am? He says, you're the Christ. You're the son of God. And he says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood didn't teach you that. But my father in heaven taught you that. Okay, how come the demons know that? How come they know who he is? Because they've been shown that by the Father in heaven. When they were in heaven before they fell. They know who he is. They recognize him as he's coming. And they immediately worship before him and declare that he is Jesus, the son of the most high God. And I implore you, by God, 
Do not torment me. Okay, now this is important. Do they recognize who Jesus is? Yes. Okay. Are they worshiping Jesus? Yes. Yes. Are they praying to him in God's name? By God, I implore you, they said. They're invoking the name of God in order to pray to Jesus, requesting things of him because they recognize him as the sovereign. And yet, are they saved? No. No. So isn't there more to salvation than just knowing Jesus? Isn't there more to salvation than just recognizing who he is? And, and by the way, he was doing miraculous things, breaking chains. Do you remember TBN used to have these muscle men on? Do you remember this? Am I alone up here? They used to have these guys on that used to lift weights and rip phone books for Jesus. I forget what they were called, but you know. The power team. Oh, yeah, the power team. Ripping phone books for Jesus. All right. This guy's actually doing it. He's actually breaking chains. You can't bind him. He has supernatural power. So he's doing miracles. He has supernatural power. He knows who Jesus is. And he worships. And he's praying to Jesus in the name of God. Is he saved? No, these demons are not saved. So what is the difference between the unsaved demons who have all that going for them and Jeff? Really, no one laughed at that? Really? What's the difference between demons and Jeff and you all stared at me? Really? (laughs) Yeah, what's the difference between Jeff and the demons? You don't think God knows the demons? Okay, so what's the difference in Jeff's response? They know who God is. You're real close to it. Oh, am I not? What is it? I like the question. I don't know what the answer is because there is no difference. We're told, being raised, I was told, all you have to do is acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God. You're in. Yeah. And they're doing it. They're acknowledging him as the Son of God. Yeah. That they're not in. It kind of shows the lie of you use your will and just admit that you know who Jesus is and make a declaration and make him your Lord and Savior. And they they know he's Lord. They're treating him like Lord. So what's the difference? I keep asking, what's the difference? Yes, sir. The Spirit of God is in one, but not the other. Close? What's the difference? It's not in what we know or what we did. It's what Jesus did. Those are all good answers. Those are all good answers, but I, I'm kind of surprised that no one caught the essential yet. Yes, sir. Jesus died for his sins and not demon's sins. Good answer. Good answer. But what I keep asking is, what's the difference between the way Jeff approaches Christ and the demons approach Christ? What's the difference? Good. So how does he demonstrate that? Go to church on Wednesday. There it is. Yay, it's such a good thing that you showed up this morning. Did you hear what she said? Jeff reacts with faith toward Christ. 
He has that gift by the Spirit of God. You're all right that he has the Spirit, and the Spirit of God produces in him faith toward the finished work of Christ. The demons aren't looking to Christ in faith. They're looking at him as their judge. They know who he is. They recognize who he is. They're responding to who he is. But they recognize him as their judge, not their savior, which is the faithful difference between demons and Jeff. Okay, so here's what they ask him, recognizing him as the judge. I implore you, by God, do not torment me. Now, if you go and read that in the book of Luke, which we're probably going to do if we have time this morning, there's an additional phrase that helps you understand it. They say, don't put us in the abyss. Now, the English word abyss is actually just a transliteration of the Greek word, which has to do with depth and then has the alpha negative on the front. It's depthless. It has no depth, and so it's sometimes translated bottomless pit. And so they're saying, don't torment us by throwing us into the bottomless pit. That tells us a lot of things. First, it tells us that the abyss is torment. Secondly, it tells us that they know that's where they're headed. And third, that he's the one that's going to send them there. They know he's the judge. He's the one that's going to dole out their ultimate punishment. They're just saying, don't do it yet. Please don't. I implore you, by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, Jesus had been saying to the demoniac, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, what is your name? And he said to him, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to entreat him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Uh, the Bible talks about arid places. You see it a lot in the Old Testament that when demons are driven out, when they have no host, they go to desert places, arid places. Jesus talks about it when he says that if there is a man who has demons driven out of him, but he doesn't have the Holy Spirit, the stronger man taking up residence in him, then they are going to go to the arid place and find more demons even worse than themselves, and they're going to come back to their host, and the end result for that man is going to be worse than the beginning was. And so they seem to be asking, don't send us out to the arid place, to the desert, to that sort of uh, lack of a host. We need to be in somebody, apparently. And he began to entreat him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now there was a big herd of swine feeding there on the mountain. And the demons entreated him saying, send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Again, absolutely fascinating. Because they're saying, we know you're going to drive us out of this man. We've got a host right now. There's a legion of us in here. You're going to make us leave him. You're going to send us somewhere, and we have no option but go wherever you tell us to go. You're the one in charge. You're the one with authority. If you send us out of the country into an arid place, into the desert, we have no choice but go there. We have to go. 
So if you're going to send us somewhere, send us into the pigs. At least give us some place to cover ourselves. And the demons entreated him, saying, send us into the swine so that we may enter them. And he gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea. About 2,000 of them. That gives you some idea how many demons we're talking about was inside that poor guy. They went into a steep bank of the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. And their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and out in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed, sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind. This is one of the reasons that I say to you so constantly, if you know your own name today, if you're in your right mind today, that's a gift. That's Jesus preserving you. That's the Holy Spirit of God that took up residence in you, who is the stronger man and is keeping you from being demonically possessed and out of your mind. If you're in your right mind, if you have the ability to think sanely, if you know your own name, that is the preserving power of God keeping you from the principalities and the powers and the spiritual wickedness in high places. So that kind of answers the question, and people do debate this quite a bit, though I don't understand the debate. They'll say, can a Christian be possessed? And the answer is, no. End of debate. Really short debate there. No, because if the Holy Spirit of God resides in you, the Holy Spirit of God is the Spirit of Christ who is more powerful than the demons. So how in the world are demons going to take up residence in you if you have the very power of God protecting you? Does that make sense? Yes. Now, can the devil influence you, for a lack of a better word? Yeah. Yeah, he can. And he does it all the time. Every time you're driving down the road and you see a billboard that catches your eye, that makes you long for something or lust for something you don't have, okay, that, that's you going into your flesh immediately. That's the world encroaching on you. That is the world drawing you away from the things of God and the things of Christ and making you more worldly, tying you to this planet. Every time that you turn on the TV or watch a movie and there's stuff that you shouldn't really see, you shouldn't really be watching, you know what the Word of God has said, and that temptation comes your way and you give in to the temptation, well, that's the influence of the world and the power of Satan drawing you away from the things of God. Yes, he's trying to influence you all the time that's why Satan whose name means the accuser Satan that's why he is accusing the brethren night and day not only is he providing the non-stop temptation for you but then he's before God all the time accusing you for the ways that you give in to those temptations that's why it's so important so vital and such good news that when we sin we have an advocate with the father because we have an accuser with the Father, we also have an advocate with the Father. And who does it turn out to be? Jesus Christ the righteous. 
who's there advocating on our behalf because of how frequently we give in to the temptations of the world and the devil and the principalities and the powers and the spiritual wickedness in high places and the rulers of the darkness of this world. That's what we're wrestling against. And we'd all be toast if it wasn't for the power of Christ. And so Christ gives them permission. The pigs drown themselves. The herdmen reported in the city. The people come out to see what has happened. Verse 15, and they came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed, sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind. The very man who had had the legion. And they became frightened. Wouldn't you think they'd be celebrating, dancing around? Look, look, look who is here in our midst. The one who has all the power, all the authority, the one who even drives out demons. He's in our midst. They become frightened by him. Why? Because they don't understand it. They don't comprehend it. They don't get it. And he's bad for the local economy. He's costing them something. And I think I can make the application to say, if you have Jesus in your midst, it's going to cost you something. Verse 16. And those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. And they began to entreat him to depart from their region. What? You have the very Son of God, the one with all the power, the one who can protect you from all the, the fiery darts of Satan. You have him in your midst. He can drive out demons. He's in complete control. They want him to leave. Get away from us. We're afraid of you. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was entreating him that he might accompany him. And Jesus did not let him. But he said to him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Okay, so this is an interesting bit of contrast in Mark's writing. Because in a moment we're going to see, well, not today, next week we're going to see Jesus do the miracle of raising a young girl from the dead. We're also going to see a woman with an issue of blood touch his garment. And after he raises the girl, look down at verse 43. He gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. So in one case, he heals a demoniac and then says, go tell it in the Decapolis. Now, Decapolis is a, is a Greek word. Decapolis basically means deca, ten, and the word for city. It's ten towns, ten cities. And he's going to go spread it among the Gentiles who Jesus is and what Jesus did. But when he's going to heal the girl who is the daughter of a servant of the temple, that's among the Jews. And among the Jews, he says, don't tell anybody. Because it's not his time yet. The Jews are the ones who are going to kill him. So again, this is a demonstration of his absolute control of everything that's going on. 
the time frame, the miracles that he's doing, who it is that's going to kill him, what day he's going to wind up on the cross. It's all in his control. And at the same time, he's making sure that the fame of him and the story of him and the power of him is being broadcast among the Gentiles. Interesting to me. Turn to the book of Luke for just a moment and we'll read the parallel account. Luke, Luke 8, go there. And Luke is going to fill in a couple details. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell that story of the demoniac. So it must be important. It was an important part of Jesus' ministry because it does demonstrate his absolute authority over the demonic realm. Starting in Luke 8 at verse 26, And they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when he had come onto the land, he was met by a certain man from the city who was possessed with demons and who had not put on any clothing for a long time, one of the clues that he was out of his mind. And he was not living in a house, but he was living in the tombs. And seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, What do I have to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? In other words, I'm here and it makes sense I'm here. I've fallen from my heavenly estate and I have found a host and I'm ransacking the planet right now. That makes sense to me. But what are you doing here? This is the realm of the prince of the power of the air. It makes sense that I'd be here. What are you doing here? And specifically, of all the places on earth you could be, why are you here where I am? What do I have to do with you? Now that implies, by the way, that Jesus went there specifically because that's where the demons were. So he came to them. The demon said, What do I have to do with you, son of the most high God? Do not torment me. For he had been commanding the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For it had seized him many times, and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard. And yet he would burst his fetters and be driven by the demon into the desert. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion for many demons had entered him and they were entreating him not to command them to depart into the abyss. The same way that Mark said, they asked him, don't command us to go into the outer country or into the arid place. Please command us to go into the pigs. Their fear was he would command them to go into the abyss. Now, in all three of those instances, whether it's out in the country, whether it's the pigs, whether it's the abyss, you don't see any indication that they had any choice in the matter. It was Jesus who was going to command them, and they knew it was Jesus who was going to command them, and they knew that whatever he commanded, they were going to do. That's just it. So again, who's in charge here? Jesus is demonstrating time and time again that he is in the absolute authority 
over everything that can come against us. And I think this is the essential reason that this story is included in all three of the synoptics. Look, what is your great enemy in life? Your great enemy is ultimately death. Death is an enemy. What's the cure? What's the answer? What's the solution to death? Jesus. Sickness is a big problem for us. Sickness is an enemy to us. Sickness will lay us down. What's the answer to sickness? Jesus. Fear. What's the answer? Jesus. He walked around saying, fear not. It's me. I'm here. Don't be afraid. Eternity. What's the answer to eternity? Jesus. Sin and temptation. What's the answer? Jesus. The demons. What about the demons? What about if a demon comes after me? What's the answer? Jesus. It's always Jesus. Jesus is the answer to whatever problem you have in this lifetime. And in the miracles he's doing in succession through the book of Mark, he's demonstrating that Jesus is the authority over every one of these things that we as humans are so desperately afraid of. The things that we fear most. The things that we think are going to get us. Those are the things that Jesus has absolute authority over. So how should we react to that fact? In faith, in confidence in Christ, not in our own will, not in our own power, not in our own strength, not in our own authority, left to ourselves. Like I said earlier, we're toast. Because either death or sickness or temptation, something's going to get you. And it's going to eat you up. And look, Satan's been around a whole lot longer than you have. He's a tricky son of a gun. He's been alluring and tempting and fooling people ever since Eden. And he'll come after you in a way that you don't even see it coming. In fact, Paul even says that he's an angel of light. My point is, you're you're prime for the plucking. You're prime for the picking if you don't have the solution to all the things that you most fear. And the solution is always Jesus. Every single time. They were entreating him, says verse 31, and they were entreating him not to command them to depart into the abyss. And there was a herd of many swine feeding on the mountain, and the demons entreated him to permit them to enter the swine, and he gave them permission And the demons came out from the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake, and they were drowned. And when the herdsmen saw what had happened, they ran away and reported it in the city and out in the country. And the people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus, and they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they became frightened." And those who had seen it reported to them how the man who was demon-possessed had been made well. And all the people of the country of the Gerasenes and the surrounding district asked Jesus to depart from them. And they were gripped with great fear. So he got into a boat and went away. And the man from whom the demons had gone out was begging him that he might accompany him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your house and describe what great things 
God has done for you. Um, Last comment. I've been watching recently a debate about tongues. And so it's taken me back to reading Paul's writing about tongues. And one of the purposes of tongues in the Bible is for the purpose of announcing the mighty works of God, the great things that God has done. Uh, Even at Pentecost, the gift of the Spirit, when the Spirit fell, it was for the purpose of converting people so that they could hear the mighty works of God, the great things that God has done. Notice what this delivered man has done. He's been full of demons, and now he's free of the demons and in his right mind. And what does Jesus command him to do? He doesn't say, now go do miracles or go be like me. Now go do the law. Now go be like Moses. No. He doesn't give him any of those commands. He says, go now and tell people the wonderful things about God, the great things that God does, the great power of God. That ought to be our boast. That ought to be what we're talking about. The Bible keeps saying it. The Bible says the whole purpose of being able to communicate, whether it's in your own language or in another language, the whole point of speech, I believe, is for the purpose of telling the wonderful works of God, praising and glorifying God for the might, for the power that he has. Never, never is it for the lifting up of the man. Jesus didn't say, now go and tell everybody how you delivered yourself and how of your own free will you committed yourself to me so well I saved you. None of that. Instead, the man was, in the truest sense of the word, powerless. He was incapable of doing anything to save himself. Why did he get saved? Because Jesus came to him. And what did Jesus do when he came to him? Delivered him. And once he was delivered, what was he told to do? Go and describe what great things God has done for you. I'm certain everybody in this room could do that. You should be doing it. You should tell the great things that God has done for you. And that kind of, I guess, takes us full circle back to where I began. If God has done these great things for you, then you ought to appropriately love him and you ought to act like you love him. And I'm not just talking about showing up on Wednesday nights, despite what Alex may think. I'm talking about every facet of your life, every arena of your life. I know I shouldn't do this. What's my power not to do it? I love God more than I love my sin. I know I should... Help somebody. I should help my friend. I should help my neighbor. I should lift up my brother. Why? Not because of him, but because of the great things God has done for you. I know I'm supposed to support the ministry. I know I'm supposed to give. Why would you do that? Why Your hard-earned money. Why would you give hard-earned money to a church? Why would you do that? Well, because you recognize what great things God has done for you. And out of love for him, you want to sacrifice back to him. Everything in your life, everything in your body, everything in your family, everything in your home, everything in this church should be about 
the great things that God has done for us. That's why we study his word. That's why we sing to him. That's why we pray to him. That's why we worship him. That's why we try to keep that frame of mind of recognizing that God is always with us, always in control, always protecting us, and we most willingly sacrifice ourselves as a living sacrifice to him because of the great things he has done for us. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. Are there any questions about that? Yes, sir. What's the difference between demons and Jeff again? Do you see it narrowing in some way? Let's hope so. He's competing with angels of light, so let's hope so. Yes, sir, Leon. We're talking about behavior, and, and but when we look at that Jesus called his disciples follow me, and they didn't have a choice. Yeah. They weren't looking to follow him. They're just doing their yeah. doing their deal. And now here's a guy who wants to follow Jesus, and Jesus says, "No, you don't. Don't come with me." Yeah. And so we can't tell from the outside looking at someone else yeah. because we don't know. Good point. That's a very good point. And I suspect there would be some today who would say, well, he's not a follower. Right. Yeah. That demon-possessed man was born for that reason, for that purpose. Uh, believe it or not, Christ... Yeah, absolutely. The same way that there was a man born blind, lived 30 years blind so that Jesus would have someone to heal... Yeah, the purpose that that man was born for and ultimately possessed by a legion was so that Christ could be there to deliver him to show the glories of God. Sovereignty of God at work again. Sovereignty of God at work again. Isn't it surprising how often that shows up in the Bible? Anything else? Does everybody understand what I said at the beginning? Does everybody get my point? I'm not trying to motivate people by guilt. I'm trying to motivate people by love of God. And for the recognition of who he is and what he did for you, that should be the motivating factor in your life. I don't do guilt. I'm not about guilt. I don't chase people. If you miss church, I don't call you and say, where were you? I I make it easy on people. I put it on the Internet in case they miss. So I make it easy. So I don't do guilt, but it is my job as a pastor to exhort people to greater levels of love of God, greater commitment and devotion in this lifetime, and I hope that that's what my words accomplished. I think as a group, we ought to give Betty a hand. She came walking in here without her walker today. She came hobbling and walking. down and he's letting me stand up but it took a little while in between but I have n- I've had so many visitors from this church so many lovely people one family even went to the trouble to find out I like bananas and, <laughs> and brought me some and some other organic fruit that's a great testimony that's kind of the way a church ought to be All right, so say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Goodbye. 
Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates and our ever-expanding archives. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.